and welcome back to another episode of Take This Job and Love It. This is a podcast from Yale's Office of Career Strategy aimed at helping you through the various aspects of finding a job and building a career that you love. My name is Claire Zala and I'm a senior in Yale College. I work with the Common Good and Creative Career team to support Yale students interested in pursuing careers that make a difference and encourage creativity. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by David McCullough III. David is the founder and executive director of the American Exchange Project, or AEP, which is the first domestic exchange program in the United States. The program's mission is to facilitate interactions between Americans from different backgrounds in the interest of forming a more perfect union. Thank you for being here today, David. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. David, could you please speak more to your work with AEP and how the organization got started? Sure. So, you know, you said it really, what we're doing is starting a domestic exchange program for high school students. It's no secret that we live in a very divided country right now, polarized, unequal, you know, animosity in every way, tribal. And about two years ago, I, along with uh, uh, an old Yale professor of mine, Paul Solomon, who's also the economics correspondent of the PBS NewsHour, and then his friend, Bob Glauber, uh, really started scratching our heads about what we could do to help bring the country back together again. And uh, we got together with several other Yale folks, Sam Chauncey, Akhil Lamar, among, among others, and uh, settled after a while, and I can speak more to this later, uh, on the idea of a study abroad in your own country, that kids, that, that, that the best folks to engage in this work to bring the country back together again would be young people, and that we should bring young people to this work, both because they're interested in, in helping bridge the divides in our country, but also because it's important to know more about the country you're growing up in. It's fun to have an adventure, to draw kids at large in for reasons that um, weren't necessarily all about fixing political polarization in the country. And that's how we landed on this idea of a domestic exchange. Um, the program itself is still in development. Uh, we ran a trial last year. Uh, where we got kids together on Zoom from Lake Charles, Louisiana, Kilgore, Longview, and Catula, Texas, and then Sudbury, Concord, and Wellesley, Massachusetts. These are three affluent liberal towns in the suburbs of Boston, and then four working-class conservative towns, or mostly conservative towns, I would say, um, in, in Louisiana and Texas. And we got kids together on Zoom. Uh, initially, we started with about 12 students over five Zoom sessions, ended up with over uh, almost 100 students over with an over 200 sessions. And we basically took towns on the opposite sides of American society and made a friend group via virtual conversations. Um, we'd hoped to run an exchange. Alas, that <laughs> uh, didn't, didn't quite work out thanks to the pandemic, but we're hiring a staff and we're slowly building our program all across the nation. Fantastic. I'm, I'm really interested to know uh, what, what kind of conversation do you think took place with, between these two very different communities? communities. Yeah, I mean, I was there, I moderated every single one of the sessions, I hosted all the, all the conversations, and the conversations ran the gamut. Sometimes we were talking about abortion rights, or race, or, um, or climate change. Other times we were debating whether or not a hot dog was a sandwich, or if a cereal was a soup. Other times we were playing trivia. Other times we were having a movie night. Other times I was scrolling through LinkedIn while a student from Louisiana was wondering, because a cow has three stomachs, does that mean she would die three times if she were to be eaten by a cow? Um, 
the, the Zoom calls become a place where kids can come on, have fun, tell stories, and meet interesting people. And for when you're growing up in a part of the country that's very unique to itself, when you're growing up in a bubble, there are lots of interesting people from America for you to meet. And what AEP does is make it as easy as possible for American high school students to meet people who live and uh, live in live in circumstances very different from their own. And so our conversations are all framed around uh, loosening up the shoulders, you know, relaxing the jaw muscles, and getting kids just chatting and hanging out with one another. You know, given that usually programs of this type are more for international travel, have you experienced any kind of surprise or resistance when you first proposed a program like this? Um, I, I was in Texas in the beginning. And we were shopping the idea around uh, just doing a little research and development in the fall of last year. And we were at a football game. Uh, uh, Kilgore High School was playing Pittsburgh High School. It was halftime of the game. And I was sitting with a, a pastor who was hosting me in the town, Pastor Glenn Young, who's on our, our board now. Um, and we were sitting near the parents of one of the students who was very interested in joining what, what would then become AEP. We didn't really know what we were doing yet. We were still designing it. Uh, and this student was, was a cheerleader on the football team. And she came up in the stands during halftime um, and started talking to her dad and she introduced me to her father. And after she left and went back to the field, the father turned to me and said, now are you that boy from Boston who's trying to get my daughter to meet strange liberals online and then go up to Boston with them? <laughs> that's been about the only real resistance I've had to AEP. Um, I, wanted, I was like, not exactly, but kind of. Um, the, um, uh, One way so, of putting it. Yeah, I would say that we've we've um, absolutely. I mean, I, I can't lie. We we started a traveling program on the eve of, pan, of a pandemic. It's that's like opening a bar on the eve of prohibition. I mean, what a terrific <laughs> idea this was before life became remote. Um, and so that's absolutely slowed down what we what we projected our, our growth and the, and the level of interest to be. And then we've also had a lot of struggles um, now that life is virtual, making inroads in, in rural and, and very conservative parts of the country. Um, those those have been the largest hurdles, I would say. Um, the but in terms of pushback, I've never had anyone say this is a bad idea. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. um, there are elements of it that are that are difficult. You know, how do you measure whether or not we're successful? How do we know that, um, you know, poor kids from the south aren't going to come up to wealthy towns and, and just get really angry? And how do we know that, um, you know, the, the sort of opposite version of the same thing will happen when kids from wealthier communities travel too? So there's a lot that we have yet to learn. But I've never had anyone tell me not worth doing. Bad idea. You know, nice try, kid. No, I think I think it's absolutely a great idea. I rem I've actually, before I even knew this program existed, I've, I've heard students at Yale um, express the idea that like, gosh, we should be having more exchanges down south than we do across the pond, because um, in a way that's become more foreign to us than anywhere, um, anywhere else, given the fact that we are, you know, contiguous. Uh, you, you've actually anticipated a lot of my questions. I was curious about the challenges of your work engaging with different communities um, and also how you do measure success um, when, it's, when it's a question of building relationships versus, you know, kind of building that exponential graph um, yeah. point. Yeah, 
Um, it, you know, to answer your, your first question first, um, the, the difficulties right now are really, as I said, making inroads in rural and conservative communities, and then also getting the word out. Um, part of what makes our program great is when kids are able to meet each other. However, kids don't want to join the program if there are no other kids in the program. So anonymity offers us a little bit of a catch-22 in that we can't recruit kids unless we have kids, but we can't have kids unless we're able to recruit kids. Um, so the, uh, the, the initial issue has been getting the word out, especially because we're a traveling program that hasn't traveled yet. That's been a real challenge. Um, it's a challenge to get folks from marginalized areas to the table. That's also been a challenge, especially virtually. When you're able to go there and show an interest in the community and sit down with folks, or when you're able to have some precedent of success doing right by people from the community that you're trying to recruit from, that's a different story. We don't have that yet. We have to crack that code and we're still working on it every day. And I you know, can't sit here and tell you that we've found the answer yet. Part of the fun is, is scratching our heads about it. Um, and then in terms of measurement, um, yeah, good question. Yeah, I'll get back to you. Um, right now, we're looking at a number of qualitative and quantitative metrics, usually around, or basically around the realms of um, uh, sociology, political science, and psychology that can show kids' growth in empathy, their growth in um, their their growth of networks, their breaking down of of stereotypes and um, prejudices. You can you can track that by conducting surveys and studying students taking part in the program over the course of the program itself. And then at the same time, you know, you can also have a, give a kid an empty composition book and say, fill it up for your two weeks on the exchange. And there's probably will be lots and lots of qualitative elements um, and qualitative uh, stories and anecdotes where we can learn a lot from the kids' experiences. Last year, we conducted a survey at the end of our online program. 93% um, of the students said that they were more empathetic to new perspectives. 97% said that they'd come across perspectives they never heard before. 93% made friends. 100% of our kids wanted to remain involved in the program. And then we had a retention rate that was about 90% as well. That's fantastic. That's really great, especially given that you guys have uh, have only scratched the surface on what this program could be um, capable that's, of. That's the cool part. It's, that's I've, where the electricity comes from. I have to ask, um, when you were at Yale, because you were at Yale, an undergrad, um, did you know that this was the kind of work you would end up doing? Oh, I hadn't had the, the faintest idea, not in a million years. I, I, um, I, I was the most educated person who had no idea what they wanted to do in the world. <laughs> when I, um, I, uh, I, I, yeah, I went to Yale, arrived at Yale in 2013, and uh, walked onto the baseball team and proceeded to stink at baseball for the next two years when then my coaches pulled me aside at the beginning of junior year and said, you know, maybe it's a better idea. You explore other possibilities for your life. Um, and to that point, baseball was really my life. I, I um, wanted to play the game for as long as I could uh, and loved it for all the reasons that, you know, boys and girls love the games they play. And, uh, and then after I was off the baseball team, suddenly the 85% of life at Yale that wasn't sports was available to me. Um, and I started writing for the Yale Daily News and reporting on uh, the city of New Haven. Every day we would ride the bus from Payne Whitney Gym to Yale Field and through the neighborhoods of New Haven and the contrast between campus, the city, and the sports facility made an impression on me every day. And it just seemed wrong. Something about it seemed off. Um, 
And as I explored and learned more about New Haven, living there, teaching preschool in the summer before junior year, and then writing about it for the YDN, these great inequalities and disparities between town and gown became more and more evident to me. Um, I, I, sorry, I, I'm building a long story here to show how I arrived at what I'm doing today, because mm -hmm. I think you'll find over the course of your student life that um, your instincts and your interests and your intuitions kind of provide the, the compass you follow without you ever even knowing it. Um, and so when I got into a program my junior year that offered me a free fellowship, um, what I wanted to do was continue to explore those disparities. I wanted to learn more about the effects of poverty on education in our country. And I wanted to go and see it myself. And the idea of a road trip to a you know 21 year old sounded like the coolest thing in the world. So I borrowed mom's car and I drove 7,000 miles across the country, lived in small town, South Texas, lived on the Pine Ridge Indian reservation and lived in some of the more blighted neighborhoods of Cleveland for a few weeks at a time and had what was for me an eye-opening experience, an educational experience unparalleled despite some of the terrific schools I'd been to. And I knew the issues. I'd read about them from afar. I knew what was going on. I knew what to expect. I knew how to ask you know, uh, informed questions about the, to the people that I talked to, but I'd never been so close to it before. I'd never been uh, seen it firsthand the way I'd seen um, what poverty looks like on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation or what happens when um, the population of a small town in South Texas goes from 3,000 and then they hit oil and it goes up to 20,000 and then oil prices go up and all the oil workers leave and it goes back to 3,000 again. Um, or when uh, what truly what the statistic of 700,000 people leaving the city of Cleveland in the past three decades, what that really looks like for neighborhoods in the city, what industry leaving a city the size of Cleveland really looks like, being able to see it at church on Sunday, being able to go up into the, the hills of South Dakota and attend a Sundance was incredible for me. It, it was the educate, it was the experience of a lifetime. And I came back thinking, my God, everyone, everyone needs to see this. How can you be an American citizen and not know what's going on in these places? Um, how can we you know, go to ballot boxes and make informed votes on the candidates and laws that we vote for and not know what's going on in these places? How can we spend our money in the economy knowing well that it'll circulate in the directions that it'll circulate in and not know what's going on for Main Street mom and pop organizations right, or, or businesses? Um, I came back from that experience uh, realizing how little I knew and how much more I had to learn. And so I went to grad school and did a degree in economic and social history at Cambridge to learn more about the politics and the economics globally behind these communities that I'd come to know in the summer before my junior year. Um, mind you, that was the summer of 2016 and, and a certain other political candidate was also gaining traction and momentum for the Republican party that same summer, going to very similar communities to the ones that I was going to, talking to a very similar constituency to the people that I was coming to know. And I was seeing how he was really exploiting vulnerabilities all over the country. And I saw very clearly the direction our country would go in if we elected him president. Lo and behold, we did that November. And, um, and it made all the more clear the divisions that I'd seen in our country. Um, for a kid from a white collar suburb of Boston, I grew up a million miles from the towns I was living in. I needed a, I should have, it should have been required for me to bring a passport to the places I went to. They were so foreign to me. And um, so I went to Cambridge um, and, and learned a lot about the, the sort of historical antecedents to what I'd seen on the road that summer. Um, and also found myself answering for 
what was happening in our country. The eyes of the world were on us. And I realized that the greatest threats to American democracy were not foreign, but domestic. Um, that folks were much more concerned about Donald Trump and, and the realities he presented to our country and our democracy than anything else. And after all these tremendous realizations, I had no freaking clue what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I wanted somehow to, to help, to contribute to it, to help form a more perfect union in whatever way I could. And I had no idea how to do that. And um, I came home and was scratching my head. I came home from Cambridge in uh, the fall of 2018 and was scratching my head um, about what to do. And like, you know, any young person scratching their head, I went out to lunch with a mentor, hoping to ask him questions about what I wanted to do with my life. That mentor was Paul Solomon, who was part of that program at Yale that sent me out on that road trip. And so we started talking about the road trip and we started talking about how we realized uh, Paul's a, a economics correspondent for PBS. And he spent the last 30 years doing the kind of traveling and, and storytelling that I'd been doing for a couple of years at that point. Um, and in talking to Paul, we, we realized that, that when we went to places and talked to people and treated them as human beings and focused on the things that we had in common, that we realized that much more united us as Americans than divided us, that we had much more in common than we knew. And that finally, that was a great vote of confidence and note of optimism, inspiration for optimism for us. And we thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we could create a program that, that, um, Paul thought, wouldn't it be interesting? Paul had long wanted to create a program that could help folks from different backgrounds become friends with each other, which at that point was Clinton supporters and, and Trump supporters meet and become friends with each other. Mm. And we were chatting, we were, we were at the Dumpling Daughter in Weston, Massachusetts. We're on about round four of dumplings at this point. <laughs> and Paul presents to me this idea and I start like spitballing the way friends do like, oh yeah, well, you should think about it this way. You know, maybe if you if people really realize this, we can make it happen. Oh, wow, wouldn't it be cool if this program? And Paul stopped me in the middle of that and said, hey, whatever you wanna do, I'm on board. And for whatever twisted reason, out of every job idea I'd had in the last two years, my brain and my heart thought that right there is what I wanna do with my life. Um, and that's really where it all began. That's, that's such an incredible story. And it's amazing that you can bring this very personal experience to the work that you do because it imbues it with such a sense of honesty and authenticity. And I'm very excited to see where your program goes. In the next Thank week. you, me, me too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can I ask, um, do you, and I know you're, you're, you're early on this journey, but do you have any advice for students who are interested in nonprofit or perhaps another creative career, but aren't sure you know, how to get started or aren't sure if they have kind of what it takes? Yeah, if you have, I think the, the, in all of my interviewing around, I think the two things that can make a really a startup like ours work is um, perseverance and persuasiveness. And perseverance comes from absolute and total devotion to what you're doing. Um, deep belief, the feeling that, you know, you wake up in the morning and your heart beats because of what you're doing and to live without it is like, it's like you know, to live without a soul. And persuasiveness comes from a deep understanding of the issue and an ability to articulate it. If you have both, you're on your way. First, a bit of advice I have is don't be afraid of making no money. Don't be afraid of being poor. Um, uh, it's, it's, Mark Twain said, I've been rich and I've been poor and rich is better. And, and uh, I think I had $42 in my savings account when I started AEP. <laughs> but um, you, you don't regret it for a minute. 
Um, that's the first bit of advice. And I think finally, the what deters a lot of folks from doing from what doing what I'm doing is the the financial risk one has to take on when you're starting something like this. That's not the case for most nonprofits. Um, so first off, don't be afraid of being poor. Second off, um, or may, not being poor, making no money. Second, the world needs you. Are not are the the American American society has this incredible element to it, which is the 501c3 tax law. Uh, there, I think it's roughly over 400 billion dollars, I, I believe, are donated in this country every year. It's an incredible amount of money, and you, innovative young people, driven and inspired, can take that capital and do incredible things with it in whatever field they want. And every field needs you. Every field needs the talent that it has right now. Absolutely, there is clustering in where graduates from places like Yale are going into the workforce these days. I don't need to tell you know, an OCS podcast that. Um, and to redistribute, to, to, to take time to go serve, to go give your, your ingenuity, your innovation, your abilities to some cause that means a lot to you, that makes the world a better place, is absolutely the best thing you could possibly do after college. Um, I, I really can't think of anything more important to do. Um, so my advice going to nonprofits is that think a lot about what you're doing and then also make sure you understand the issue. I graduated from college and realized how little I knew. And, and that was the best thing that ever happened because what Yale teaches you is not to be a know-it-all, but to be a lifelong learner, very much a platitude, but it really is true. And if you can cultivate the ability to constantly learn more about what you're working on and what you care about, then your 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 potential for growth and what you're working on that that the that entity's potential for growth is really unlimited. In a few months, you're a senior, clear. Yes. So in a few months, uh, maybe not on a podium, but in front of all your class, clad in cap and gown, you will be sitting there, and uh, President Solovey will endow upon you the rights and responsibilities of a Yale degree. Rights and responsibilities. Think a lot about, and I encourage every Yale graduate to think a lot about what those responsibilities are and take a good long look at your country, your communities, your friends, and the world, and think about what those responsib responsibilities are. And when you come up with your answer, dive in. Don't hesitate for a minute. And also remember that at Harvard, they're hearing rights and privileges. So that's <laughs> Someone once said to me, um, you don't earn your Yale degree, you don't, you don't earn your Yale education before you get here, and you don't earn it while you're here, you earn it after you leave. And I think that that's been a really interesting, that, that's kind of stuck with me for a very long time, is thinking about how do you, how do you earn something that you already have. Um, and yeah, and that's why I love doing this podcast, because I get to hear so many different ideas about how to fulfill that, uh, like you said, right responsibility. Um, so uh, we're almost out of time, but just to wrap up, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, um, sure. but I always like to ask people, um, what are your hopes for the future uh, as, we, as we end this conversation today? Um, my hopes for the future are, uh, I mean, professionally, I mean, my chief hope for the future is person. I've got an amazing girlfriend and I, I just, I can't wait to continue to watch that relationship take off. So that's hope number one. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna blush. Uh, my other hope for the future um, uh, is that we're able to run this program, that it's able to take off. My real hope for the future is that this, this period that we've come through in our nation's history 
um, is a real becomes a sobering moment for us as a society in which we realize that our democracy can endure, but it's also fragile and it's on us to maintain. And my other hope for the future is that the scores of wonderful young people out in the world, people like you, people like the students at Yale who are listening to this podcast, really take up the responsibilities that the, this moment has pushed upon them. If the advantaged young people in our generation don't take the helm right now, the whole ship is really sunk. Traveling the country for the last several years, I cannot tell you how dire the situation is out there. And my great hope is that this moment becomes a sobering moment for us and then a great moment of mobilization when Americans are able to reach across the divides and come together. It sounds kumbaya, but my God, is it needed. Um, and then personally, yeah, I hope our, I hope our program takes off and, and is able to serve hundreds of thousands of kids and get them all traveling abroad in their own country. I have every confidence that it will. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. You're very welcome, Claire. Thank you. Everyone, that was David McCullough III from the American Exchange Project. Thank you so much for listening.